All right, well, welcome everybody in this room and everybody watching online. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new, maybe you've not been coming around for a long time, uh, let me tell you something about our church. I guess it's kind of helpful to know, you, you know you're here for some reason. So what's this church about? Well, we are a young church that believes very old things. You know, we're about four years old. We're about to celebrate our fourth birthday or our fourth anniversary in September. We'll be telling you more about that. Um, but we've been here for four years. So we are, a, in some ways, we are a very young church that believes very ancient things. And that's why you can, by the way, as I, as I kind of intro here, you can type to, turn to, scroll to, swipe to, flip to, whatever you do, um, the book of Malachi. That's going to be the end of your Old Testament, or you can just Google it. If you have a phone, Google Malachi. We're going to be in chapter two. And, and as you're turning there, let me just tell you, uh, you know, we're all trying to navigate and negotiate this unique season. You're trying to do it. I'm trying to do it. You're trying to do it with your family, your business, your industry. We're trying to do it as a church. And, and one of the things that we are really excited about that. We are going to be starting back up in September, on September 18th and 19th. We are going to be having our first in-person weekender. Now, we've not had an in-person weekender in six months. And, and just so you know, if you've been coming around just for a little bit, um, we used to have weekenders. And by the way, what is a weekender? It's, it's how you get, go from the crowd to connected and committed. It's how you take your next step to, I don't know, meet the staff and wonder, you know, what is the why underneath, uh, you know, what, you know, how, how do we do things you want to learn? Maybe you want to get connected to a community group. Maybe you want to serve. And, and, you know, if you're a Christian, you'll want to do those two things. That's what the Holy Spirit does in your life, right? And that's what Christians have always wanted to do. Christians have always kind of said something like, well, you know, here's where I am and I need to be connected to community so I can use my gifts. And, you know, I can't really love one another and bear one another's burdens and pray for one another and confess my sin. And I can't do any of that if I'm not meaningfully connected to community. So the weekender is your next step. Now, this is really cool. We announced the weekender last week, uh, last Thursday night. Uh, it's already a third of the way full. So let me just encourage you to go online or outside to the welcome tent afterwards and to sign up. And if you would go, should I sign up? Is this for me? Yes. You know, absolutely. It's going to be your next step. Uh, we have a lot of things planned that we're going to be announcing. Uh, by the way, uh, if you're a member of our church, a covenant member of our church, Monday night, that's uh, the, uh, August 17th at 6.30 in this room, we're going to be have a members gathering. And I am so excited to share for you the vision and plan for this fall, as well as to celebrate and update you guys on all that God has done. So, so I just want to update you guys on those things, and then I want us to pick back up in Malachi chapter 2. So turn to Malachi chapter 2. If you're new, Malachi is an interesting book. It's the last book in the, in the Old Testament. Here's what Malachi is. Malachi is the book of Revelation in the Old Testament, kind of. You know, I know Revelation's, you know, a longer book, and, you know, Re Revelation's very apocalyptic in its nature, but they're both the final book of a testament uh, where God's giving a final word. So if you, if you want to write down something, you go, well, what's Malachi about? Let me kind of make it, you know, summarize it in a sentence. It's God's final word to put him first. It comes at the end of 1,500 years of God speaking to them, of God talking with them, of God uh, casting vision, giving law, giving promise. And he, it's basically God goes, here's your report card. Here's your scorecard. Uh, here's your annual review. And it's, it's not going well. Okay, this book in some ways, the reason that most of you maybe have never read it or never heard it preached on is, you know, there's some hard words in this and we subtitled, you know, and we try to be intentional with what we do. So maybe you notice that we subtitled this series, Calling the Church Up. And you go, well, what's that about? Well, you're going to see today, but one of the things that Nehemiah does is he, he kind of, he uses shocking and surprising language. Um, God does through the prophet Malachi to call up these people because, you know, what do you need in your life? I mean, not, I didn't ask what do you want, but what do you need? Well, what do you need in your life is you need to be called out, right? 
I mean, some of you, that's why you're in the exact same place you've been for, I don't know, the last six weeks or last six months or last six years or, God forbid, last six decades. You know, and you're like, well, why am I here? And, well, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't know, you know, all your story, but I know one of the reasons you're probably there, if you're still there, is because nobody has ever called you out. And your wife has been secretly praying, oh, Lord, please, <laughs> would you please raise up some guy that's got enough fortitude and knows enough Bible and sees enough of my husband's life to tell him to stop being so lazy? Can somebody speak in, I don't know, how he deals with the kids? Can somebody? Don't think, don't think husbands don't pray that sometimes too, okay? We're not allowed to talk about it, okay? Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you, you're like, well, I don't want to talk about it. She'll get emotional. She'll cry. I don't know what we're going to do. And so maybe, but maybe there might be some godly woman who she could call her out, call her up. Because the whole idea, by, by the way, behind this book is that God wants more for you. That you, you have to really believe that when you, hey, I put him first because God wants more for you. But I don't mean like God wants more for you in like the way a 14-year-old fantasizes about their future life. Like, uh, it'd be really cool if I could just do something cool and life would be easy and I would own a boat. And that's not what we're talking about. Although all those things might be nice. But, but that's, not, that's not what we're talking about. God has this great view. And what he's going to do today is he's going to talk about leaders. And I want you to see this. In chapter 2, verse 1, he moves from the people to the priest, from the laity to the leadership, from the members to the, to the ministers, from the general congregation to the clergy. And, um, and here's what he says. If you will look with me at verse 1, it says this, And now, O priest, and you need to know this, priests were basically the pastors back then, right? They have priests, we have pastors, they had temple, we have church. Um, but they were the ministers of God to the people. In fact, God kind of set up a checks and balances system um, because of the, the sinfulness of human heart. God said, okay, well, we need priests, and they'll kind of minister to you know, the people and teach the word. And then we need kings and they'll kind of set up the systems and structures. They'll kind of be the government. And then we'll have prophets, that's Malachi. And what Malachi will do and what the prophets do is they make sure the priests and the kings are doing their job. And so he comes to them and he speaks to them and, and this is going to be a message really on leadership. And so some of you, this is what happens every time, you know, you know this is, a, you know, if you ever speak and communicate with people, you know that if you say a certain topic, then people kind of check out. Oh, it's on, on leadership. Well, I'm not a leader. It's on marriage. Well, I'm not married yet. It's on, you know, it's on being a parent. Well, I don't have any kids, and I don't even know if I'm going to ever have any kids. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about leadership, because this is, this is a message. God's going to speak to the leaders. And, and, and the question that's fair for you to ask is, like, is, is everybody a leader? And that's a good question to ask. Is everybody a leader? Well, the answer is kind of like, like the answer is to a lot of difficult questions, yes and no. You know, uh, no in the sense that not everybody is a big L leader, they have a platform, they have a position, they have maybe, I don't know, a large social media following, I don't know. They look behind them, there's a lots, of, lots of people following them. And it's pretty obvious that they're a leader. But then there's little L leaders, okay, and that's all of us. Little L leader is, you know, you have influence in your sphere that God has given you. You know, if you're a parent, you're an influencer, you're a leader. If you're a spouse, you have influence. In fact, this is a good thing to know, anytime you have a meaningful relationship, there's the potential for leadership. Right? We call it peer pressure. Peer pressure is I hang out with my friends, they influence me, and then hopefully I, I influence them. So, so this is an incredibly important topic. And then it's very timely because, you know, what are you, what's in the news right now? Leadership, kind of. I mean, it doesn't matter kind of where you land politically. The question is like, is, is, there any, is anybody doing a good job leading? And some people would say yes. And some people say, well, thank God I live in a, you know, in a red state because I got a lot of freedom. And then people go, well, thank God I live in a blue state because I got a lot of safety. And, and we either need to keep the guy in November or get a different guy in November. And, and, and under all that is, is in part what I think leadership should be. 
And so I could not think of a more timely thing. Plus, a lot of you are very young. You're at the beginning of your career. You're at the beginning of your family. You're at the beginning of your life. You, you're, you are, Lord willing, across time going to have more influence. And so it's good to know these things about leadership now. And so here's what I want us to see about leadership. Here's the first thing. There are several principles that arise right out of Scripture from this text about leadership. And here's the first principle. The pastors must lead because the people will follow. Now, this is my most specific thing about kind of pastors and maybe you might say full-time vocational ministers. The rest will be more general, but this is an important point because uh, I want you to see this. He writes to the priest. Again, I'll read it to you. And now, O priest, this command is for you. Now, why would he write to the priest? And And this is a principle that you need to know, and this is why he does it. This is why God, through Malachi, writes to the priest, because people become like their priest or like their pastors. Um, or, you know, you might say, I don't know, kids become like their parents. I mean, the older that we tend to get, right, the older that you tend to get, the more you tend to look at yourself one day and go, I am my dad. <laughs> right? You say something, you do something, I am my mother. Oh, my goodness, you know? Um, it's because, well, that's, you know, or, or, you know, if I were to be able to see the podcast, I don't know, that you went to or the professors that you took and, you know, it's like you're going to become like the people that you sit under. And so God's care and concern for the entire church He speaks first and foremost, and we'll see this in a few minutes, harshest to leadership. God saves his, this this section is the hardest hitting section in the entire book of Malachi. And why is that? Well, because God tends to reserve his harshest language for men who fail in their leadership positions. And that's where we are today in the book of Malachi. And here's what's really, really interesting. It's a mass conspiracy. Let me remind you what was happening last week. Because I want you to know the context of this book. My heart is always, I want you to understand the historical, grammatical context. When you read it, you go, that's what Malachi says, and that's what they heard. And then I want you to know what to do with it now. And so here's what was happening back then. There, there, there are these, uh, it says this in chapter one. You can go back and read it. Um, the, all the people were bringing lame, blind and sick animals as their sacrifice, worship, and giving. Okay? And God calls them out, and then he calls the priest out, and you go, well, why is he doing that? It's like, listen, this is really, I'm going to try to explain this. This is a really deep concept. It's that the priest and the people were in it together to both be lazy. That's the only way, you know, a lot of times people read history, they go, the Nazis, weren't they terrible? And they were. Or Hitler, wasn't he terrible? Yeah. But also, basically, one out of three Germans were a spy. They voluntarily spied on each other. Everybody watched everything happen and said nothing for a long time. That's the only way things like that happen. The only way churches go that way or nations go that way is if everyone decides to do nothing. And so here's what was happening, and and, and and think about this for a while. So they were bringing these animals to the priest, and it's like, hey, this animal's lame, and it's not my best, and it's sick, and I, I, I really can't serve, and I really can't give, and I really don't want to be a member, and whatever they were saying. And then the priest said, well, okay. And then they said, I like you. Right? This is a, I mean, we don't always, this is all subconscious. We don't always say these things. But this is what people are thinking. Great. I would actually like a pastor who doesn't call me out. I would like a pastor who's just maybe a little less worldly than me. A more religious version of me. Now, and I feel bad for the pastors at one level, because here's, what, here's their story, just, you know, and this is helpful to know, when you know the whole story about somebody, that's part of the way that you can forgive people who even do terrible things to you when you kind of can have compassion on them. Here's what was going on with the priest. 
Um, the only things the priests got to eat were the sacrifices that the people brought. So then they're stuck. It's like, well, this sacrifice is lame, no pun intended, you know. Um, but really, I mean, it's terrible, but you know, I got three kids, or I got four kids, or I don't know, I'm living in the parsonage, it's not very great, but it's the only house I have. And so, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything, I'm not going to call you anything, because, you know, I, it, it's, it's, the whole idea here is that it's like, you know, what, what does terrible leadership do? It just settles for whatever it can get. And this happens a lot more than you might think. And people tend to, in all different domains, of course the domain I know the most is the church, but in all different types of domains, people tend to hire the type of leaders that, for themselves, for their own reasons, right? I mean, obviously. Like, you know, okay, yeah, I, here's what I want. I just want a really nice, kind guy who will just bury us all over the next 30 years. And, you know, and, and he won't, or actually a lot of times it's like, well, get the deacon board together and the deacon will find some harmless guy who they can control. That's a good idea. Who will never ruffle anything up, you know? And so this is what ends up happening. It's this mass conspiracy between the people and the priest. And so God's speaking into this and he's calling the priest out for it. Because here's the truth. Leadership is not just what you teach. It's also what you tolerate. And this is, I don't know, it's good to know if you're a parent, right? It's good to know in anything. It's like, it's good to know if you're in business. It's like, well, what is leadership? It's like, well, it's not just what you teach. I mean, that's nice. It's nice to know things and be able to explain things. But leadership is also what you tolerate. And what God's saying is stop tolerating that kind of stuff, right? Which is like, we don't have anything, we don't have like a, a category for that because we think tolerance is like, I don't know, the highest virtue. Aren't we, I mean, multiple perspectives and lifestyles and ideologies, I mean, it, it, shouldn't everything just be about, you know, generic diversity and letting everybody do whatever they want to do? And God's like, no, <laughs> no. I have spoken, I am patient, but I'm not tolerant. And there are certain people and certain lifestyles and certain sins that need called out. And so he, he, he says this. Here's, here's another big thing with this. Is it's the whole idea behind this is that the church must be led. And I don't, I don't know that this is a new concept for anyone. Maybe it's like, it's, maybe it's like so obvious, but I don't know. I'm, I'm reading this and I'm just thinking, why is he writing to the priest? It's like, well, here's, here it's straightforward is because the church has to be led. You know what I mean? And I take this as a compliment, not, not because of me, but because just the great team we got, the great staff we've got, the great elders we've got, the great volunteers we've got. But every once in a while, someone comes around and says something like, man, the church, this church feels so different. And basically, as we talk about it, one of the things they say, and we're of course not the only one doing this, but they say, it's like we're being led somewhere. It's like we're told no occasionally. It's like there's actually an, a, a vision. We're very clear, we're trying to reach people, we're trying to make disciples, and we're super focused on what we're doing. So the first thing he does is he calls out the priests because he says the priests are setting the example and model that the people will become. Here's the second thing he says. He says, God is always speaking, we're not always listening. I want you to look at verse two. If you will not listen, right? We'll, we'll see what that means in a second. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart. So there's a difference between hearing and taking it to heart. But let's look at this. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send this curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Notice twice there, the heart is mentioned. 
And I want to talk about this for a while with us because the longer you're a Christian, the easier it is to hear but not take it to heart. Right? I mean, that's the longest 18 inches. The, the 18 inches between your head and your heart. And what he's saying is, you know, there's a difference between knowing what the Bible says about something and having it actually impact and influence your life. And the longer you're a Christian, the more it's easy to go, uh, because I understand the passage, I've obeyed the passage. Those are actually different things. And so he's coming and he's saying this, and, and one of the questions I would ask you is, and I've asked myself this week, is how are you doing at taking the word of God to heart? So, to, you know, and, and, and what does it mean? What is the heart? It's the seat, sum, and center of who you are. That's what the heart is. And, it, it, and, and I don't think we're very, let me tell you a couple things. I think the average American, the average American Christian is, is when it comes to listening. I, I think we're very distracted, right? What hinders us from listening? That's the question I'm kind of asking. I think we're distracted. Um, I mean, think about this with me. Um, we're distracted. I don't want to just give you all the, the, the things you know, right? You're on social media. We all are. You know, we, the average American picks up their phone 52 times a day. <laughs> That's a lot. Um, <clears throat> You know, the, the idea that we, we just, whether it's our streaming services, our social media, our hobbies, the 24-hour news cycle, aimlessly scrolling the internet, worrying about things that will never happen, whatever it is, it's like we spend so much time being distracted, and, and I think it's like, well, there's three things in our life that, that, you know, it's interesting, you know, I've talked about this last week, I think, a little bit. You know, when you study church history, you realize, man, there are certain things Christians have always done that we no longer do. So silence, solitude, and Sabbath are three practices that we don't really practice, but that's kind of the way you get the Word of God into you. You know, it's like, well, we take our phones to the bathroom. Right? It's like that. We, there's never a time where we are not usually listening to something, reading something, watching something. And without solitude, time alone which makes some of us feel really uncomfortable. Silence, the ability to quiet down, really reflect. Sabbath, or Lord's Day, whatever you want to call it, the ability to take a day and rest. Those are, those habits, there's other habits, journaling, all that kind of devotional times. Th those are habits that help the word of God get into you. Here's, here's another, uh, I think, reason that we, uh, we don't listen as well as we could. The, another reason would be selective hearing, right? Selective hearing is I... I read the passages, and then I don't like what they say, so I kind of harden my heart at certain topics or themes or texts. And, and maybe you consciously do this, maybe you self-consciously, uh, unconsciously do this. You know, I, I give you an example. Uh, Ligon Duncan, godly man, uh, professor, pastor, theologian, just a great Bible teacher. He's a Presbyterian minister. Um, he, taught, he taught ethics at seminary. And he recently wrote, he said, you know, it's interesting, I taught ethics at seminary, I don't know how long it was, let's say for a decade. He said, I taught ethics at seminary for a decade, and he said, and I taught, and he named 15, 20 things. And he said, and you know what, I never one time talked about the sinfulness of racism. And he said, it's interesting, because I'm from Mississippi. He said, it just was, it wasn't that I was trying to avoid those, it's just I've learned how to read around them almost. How do, how do you get around selective reading? You have to be in community. Right? Because it's like, you, you know, you're, you're seeing certain things and you're bringing your kind of, you know, ideas to the text and you're bringing your background and, you know, there's a lot of part of you that doesn't want to obey what it says. And so the, the, that's why the Bible, you know, is meant to be read in community. 
And then the third thing that we tend to do that instead of really listening to the word of God, like these people were, uh, were told they weren't doing, is we rationalize it, right? Which is what we see them doing throughout the whole book. They're asking lots of questions. They're making lots of excuses. You know, when you rationalize, you tell yourself rational lies. That's what we do. And with rationalizing things, it's like, hey, brain, I need a lot of power to allow myself to feel okay with what I'm doing. And the opposite of rationalization is repentance. You know, and, and really, when you read a difficult passage in the Bible, and there's lots in the book of Malachi, you always have two options, edit my Bible or change my life. And, there, and those are the two options. Well, I edit my Bible, which there, there's whole denominations, there's whole seminaries, there's whole entire networks, there's entire movements, there's entire publishing, Christian publishing companies and journals that have decided it's way too painful to change my life. It's a lot easier to edit the Bible. And so this leads God to say what he's going to say next in verse 3. If you look at me at verse 3, here's what he says. <laughs> or verse, uh, verse 2, I'm sorry. If you will not listen, if indeed you will not take it to heart, to honor my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send this curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. What God is doing there is he's giving them one last chance. He's always saying if. If you, if you, if you, if you, and he gives a negative version there. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. What it means is there's always a chance. And this is what's, this is the hope of the gospel. And even in the midst of a lot of hard things is there's always a chance to repent and believe the gospel. There's always a chance. So, so what this is talking about is, is personal renewal. Personal renewal is when the, the doctrines and teachings of grace and sin become real in your life so that it actually ch changes and transforms you. So he gives this warning, and then I want you to see what he does next. Um, here's the third big thing he does. God uses hard words to make soft people. And, and, I, and I need to kind of, before I read this text to you, I need to kind of introduce it to you, because what I'm about to read you, if you've never read the book of Malachi, you're going to be shocked and surprised. Um, if you are very religious, you'll be offended. But welcome, we love you. Um, and and, um, and if, you, you, if you're reading ahead, you're really excited that I'm going to talk about this, okay? Um, and if you are a middle school boy, this is your favorite verse, okay? Uh, so so I, I say all that to say, um, let me read this verse and then explain it to you. And by the way, this is one of the reasons that we love expositional or expository preaching. We just walk right through books of the Bible, and we believe all scriptures inspired. And well, here's a hard word, but maybe God, or definitely God has something to say to us in it. So, so here it is. This is his word. This is his strongest language to the priest of that day. He goes, behold, which is used five times in this book, always introduce something shocking. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. Okay, fairly shocking, but here's what's next. And spread dung on your faces. I mean, it's right there. And the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away from it. Now, you first read this, and this sounds like a conversation that happens in my home oftentimes between my two young boys. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're trying to get them to not to do the, you know, I, I will poop on your face is a common expression in the Mercer house by the boys, um, <laughs> by the young boys. And uh, we're trying to say no, no potty talk and all that, you know. Um, but it's interesting because, it's seriously, I mean, like, and I'm trying to, you know, you know, as you think about this, I'm like, how do you talk about this in the way the scripture does without, you know, I'm not trying to be, overly funny about it or disrespectful about it or take it further than the scripture does. But, you know, what he says is I want to, I'm going to take feces from the sacrifices and I'm going to spread it on your face. And I'm going to take poop and put it on the face of the priest. That's what he's saying. Which is like, that's very offensive. Exactly. Let me explain what was going on here. 
So when you would offer the sacrifices, well, actually, let me say one other thing before I get into it. God reserves this harsh language. Usually, I said this earlier, but I want to say it again. Usually, he doesn't use it all the time, right? This is not an excuse. Let me say this. This is not an excuse for Christians to use harsh language. This is to say there are certain times where people need to hear hard words, where people need to have things said to them, where these people have not been listening for hundreds of years. And so it's, it's like, look, I, I, I want to use it sparingly. I want to use it like mustard. <laughs> a little goes a long way. But I've got something to say to you. So he uses this expression. Now, what does this mean? What would happen back then is they would take the sacrifices, and most of us don't know this stuff because, well, we're removed from that time period, and many of us are also removed from farming and all that kind of stuff. But, but there's all these rules. I won't get into them. If you read, you know, if you read Exodus, or sorry, if you read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there's all these rules about, hey, when you make a sacrifice, things like this. Hey, when you make a sacrifice, um, you know, clean it and gut it. And, and one of the rules is, hey, take the feces out and burn it outside the camp. And God's saying this. He's saying, okay, here's, here's what I'm saying. I'm going, he, he's basically saying everything that you're teaching and everything that you're doing, it's like dung. It's like feces, whatever word you feel comfortable with, but it's, that's certainly what it means. And what I want to do is I want to take, I want to be, you know, signs are powerful, symbols are powerful. He says, what I want to do is I want to take the grossest thing about the sacrifice, because I don't think you see how gross it is. You think it's okay to bring your last, least, and leftovers. You think it's okay to kind of have this environment where you just let people do whatever you want to do. And we'll see this in a minute. And also teach them wrong things. Teach them that everyone will be okay forever, no matter what. And because you want to do that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the worst part of this offering, and I'm going to put it on the most visible part of your face. And I want everybody to know that this represents your teaching. It stinks. It has no nutritional value. It's absolutely disgusting. And so what you're going to have to figure out in your own way, and th- but it's a good application just for you to know as parents, as friends, as, 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 as a little L leader or a big L leader, there's going to be a time where you're going to need to use some language. And some people go, well, Christians, don't you talk like that? They don't talk like that all the time. They don't talk like that often. But you might, you, you, you will experience if you haven't yet, that some, some of the most powerful moments in your life is when somebody says something, often in a little bit more of a forceful way to you that you needed to hear, but you wouldn't hear any other way unless it was said like this. And so he says this. The second thing he says, well, he says it first, but I wanted to focus on the more shocking part. The second thing he says is he'll rebuke his, their offspring. We're not going to talk about this a lot, but that's a talk about children. We'll talk about it more next week because next week is more uh, marriage, family, children, all of that. But basically what he's saying is, guys, you're forgetting about the next generation, right? When you, when you have the, hey, I'll just do whatever I can to get by and I'll take whatever I can, you know, I'll take whatever sacrifice I can get. I'm not thinking about generationally. I'm not thinking long-term. I'm not thinking legacy. I'm thinking about me and my needs and having them met right now. And so he, he rebukes them, which leads... To the final thing. The final thing is this. God is looking for spiritual leaders. God is looking for spiritual leaders. I want, I, want to, I want to end with more of an encouragement because he spends the first three verses saying negative things and the last four saying what somebody should be. And I want you to see this. He's saying God is looking for spiritual leaders. And in verses four through nine, if you want to, if you want to write in your Bible, I don't know if you feel comfortable doing that, in verses four through nine, it's one of the few places in the Old Testament where God says what he's looking for in a spiritual leader. 
And I want you to know this about our church. Our desire is to raise up spiritual leaders. Big L leaders, little L leaders. Spiritual leaders in every, you know, vocation. And, and then also spiritual leaders who might, might say, hey, I want to be in full-time vocational ministry. I want to tell you one encouraging thing that we just started. I want you to know about the life of our church and something, two things, actually, I want to tell you about that we're, we're real excited about. The first is we just started in a residency program at our church. And we have two young men who on August, just the very beginning of August, started with us. These two young men want to be in full-time vocational ministry, and they have raised their own support to come on our staff for two years to say, help me develop my gifts, help me discover my calling. And I'll just tell you, it's so exciting. Residents are to a staff team what new believers are to a church. They create a hunger and a desire and a passion, and we want more of them. We're excited. And we hope to continue to build in our church at multiple levels for men and women a residency culture for people who want to be in full-time vocational ministry. That's what we're really excited about. Secondly, well, I'll tell you a couple things actually that are coming to mind. Um, uh, We are continuing to grow the elders in our church. If you're new, um, you know, another question you might ask is, well, how was the church led? Well, there's a long answer to that, but the short answer to that is, we're Jesus-ruled, elder-led, congregationally accountable. And we're ruled by, we're led by a plurality of elders, and uh, and we are in the process of of going with another round of several men to raise them up, to to help us to better to lead, to shepherd, and, and to hopefully do the things, the opposite that we're seeing here of these priests, and to do the things that we're, I'm about to read to you. And I, and I also tell you, I read this, uh, this, this passage is important, one, so you can kind of evaluate, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing, but you can evaluate how we're doing, because the Bible's like, this is my job description, and, you know, this is your community group's job description, and we're going to read that in a second. And then it's also important for you to know, because, you know, many of you won't be here forever. A job will take you somewhere else, education will take you somewhere else, family will take you somewhere else, and you're going to need to go, know, and you're going to need to look at certain places and go, what should I look for in a leader? What should my pastor be about? What should my church be about? And, and let me just tell you, the last thing is, is we are continuing to raise up more and more community group leaders. And, and we talk about community groups a lot here, and I want you to understand this, because um, we believe that you're going to need two things the rest of your life. You're going to need knowledge of the Bible, and you're going to need people that love you. And if you'll connect to a community group, and we've got over 50 of them in our church, and we're launching this fall at least three more new ones, Uh, Part of what we're doing and part of how we're able to do that, listen, we cannot start, every time you see a a community group, thank God for leaders. Because no community group gets started unless a husband and wife together say, yep, we'll lead it. And then unless somebody else says, yep, we'll host it. None of that gets started. And guess what? Usually, how, how is a community group doing after a year or so? Well, it depends on the leader. And so, th- so this is an incredibly important topic. So in verses four through nine, I want you to see what he says about leadership. Verses four through nine, I'll, I'll read all of it and then make some comments. He says this, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi, and you can read about him in the Old Testament, he was a very godly man, may stand, says the Lord of hosts, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, And he feared me. This is what godly men and women do. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. And the people should seek instruction from his mouth. 
for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you, and then he, he gives one more warning, but you have turned aside from the way. You've not done any of the things I've just told you what a spiritual leader does. You have caused many to stumble. See, that's why he's talking to them. Because as a leader goes, so goes his followers or her followers. He says this, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. I wanted to give you four things quickly that leaders do. Number one, leaders have a calling. If you'll go back in verses four and five, it, he says, so you shall know that I have sent this command to you. What you see in all of leadership is a sense of calling, right? What does God say to elders in, in 1 Timothy 3? He who desires the work has a noble calling. That there, there's a sense, and calling's really, really important, right? And you don't have to be called to vote full-time vocational ministry. Just, just called. It's like calling's so important because, well, ministry's hard. At, at all levels, if you're going to be a community group leader, if you're going to try to disciple somebody, every time you enter ministry, you get a front row seat at the best and worst things in people's lives. And it's, it's incredible, you know, in many ways, but it's very, very difficult. And there's going to be, it, it's, it's a calling, right? We talk about careers here a lot of times, but the idea is calling. And God has called me to it. And what's going to sustain me through the difficulty of all of it is calling. The second is communion with God. Look what it says here. Verse six, true instruction was found in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. You know, there was a, there's been many studies done, but um, there, there was a study done of a bunch of leaders who had moral failures, Christian leaders who had moral failures. And I can't remember every detail of the study, but it was a study about, you know, I don't know, a nonprofit leader and a president of a Christian college, and, you know, and there were a bunch of pastors and other leaders, and they'd all had moral failures to one degree or another. And one of the questions that they asked them I can't remember every detail of it, but it was, it was basically in the 30 to 60 days leading up to it, did you have any type of devotional life? And the answer was, everybody said, no, I did not. That one of the common denominators, I'm not saying it for every person who's ever had a more fire, but was a lack of somewhere along the line, they stopped walking with the Lord. You know, they got more excited about what God was going to do through them, maybe, maybe then what God was going to do in them or with them. And so th there's this, this reminder of, hey, we need to walk with the Lord. We need to have a personal relationship. We need to, sin needs to be real in my life. I need to be every day going, I am a real sinner, real sinner. Other people are not sinners. I am a sinner. And I need grace. Grace is not a theological concept that's neat to talk about and we can give definitions to, but grace is a reality that I need in my marriage and I need with my kids and I need with my struggle with sin because what burnout is, and I tell you guys this all the time because I don't want you to get burnout. I certainly don't want to get burnout. Burnout happens when your private life and your public life are different for too long and too big of an extreme. And you just get completely worn out because you're like, well, I can't be this one person publicly and then this other person privately. I can't keep saying these things publicly and being this person privately. And you crumble. You tend to burn out or you tend to blow up. So he says the first two things are what you'd think. Calling from God, communion with God. The third is to c communicate God's word rightly. And this is the, this is the thrust, really, of it. Because he, he, this is mentioned several times. Verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. 
Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. I'll give you actually the last two C's together. It's communicating God's word and being courageous. And you see those together because he says, you know, it's true instruction, you know? In other words, you have to be willing. And actually, one of the reasons he says, I'm going to put feces on your face and, uh, and all that is, is because, it, well, I forgot to say this a little earlier, is basically because it's like, look, you're trying to look good and I'm going to embarrass you. Because the reason that a lot of people lead the way they do and allow people to get away with what they're getting away with is because they, all they want to do is be liked. It's like, well, you know, and who can blame them? It's nice to be liked. If you look at verse 9, you can look there right now. It says, their main sin was they were, they were showing partiality. They would only, they, would only they, they, they treated people and biblical passages differently. They would talk about certain passages and not others. They would deal with certain people and not others. If you gave a lot of money and you had a lake house, I don't say hard things to you. But, it, but if you're poor and you, don't, and you can't really help much, then I'll call you out. That's called partiality. Or we'll only talk about certain things here. You know, our desire is to, we think it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. And so we're going to talk about all of it. You know, and hopefully in, in the most loving, Christ-like, spirit-filled, humble way possible, offend everybody. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to talk about, you know, all types of sexual sin, all of them, every one of them. Yep. All, uh, you know, all sex out of heterosexual marriage is sinful. Yep, all of them. Every one of them. That's the answer. And we can take, you know, time, but okay. Uh, it's like, okay, we're going to talk about the sinfulness of racism. We're going to talk about it. The need to repent. If, if you have racism in your heart, repent of it. Uh, we want to see racial reconciliation. Yep. Okay, we're also going to talk about the sinfulness of abortion. Yep, it's sinful. Yep, we love the preborn and the unborn. Absolutely. We're going to talk about other topics that no one wants to talk about, like hell, like a bloody cross, like, like your, your problem, which nobody really wants to hear. You know, that you've caused yourself a lot of harm, that you need to repent, that you're going to be judged by God. It's like, yeah, we're going to talk about all of those things. And then we're going to, talk, we're going to say this to all different types of people. And, and they were afraid to do that. And it's no wonder. Because what happened as soon as the state, and this is a very common thing, this is good to know historically, as soon as the state stopped... Um, paying for the church. This happened a long time ago, you know, where, where the state would fund the church. Now, when the state stopped funding the church, it's like, well, praise the Lord, because you don't want those two entwined together. But what happened? Then every church became local. And then guess who pays for everything? The people listening to the sermons. So then what becomes the temptation of every person and communicator as soon as everybody who's out there is the ones who are paying for everything? To say what will make them feel good. And, you know, it may be foolishness. It may be lack of self-awareness by me. I just don't care. <laughs> I, it's probably, I don't want to act like it's courage. You know, the difference between courage and foolishness, it's not always easy to tell. Okay? <laughs> it may just be foolishness, but God, that may be just like one little small area where God's giving me grace. But, but, but our commitment is to talk about all this. And here's what I want you to understand this. I want you to know about the culture of our church. It's so important. We, we want to lead and go, this is who we are. You know, if you don't like it, we can talk about it, but, but thank you. You know, we, we, want, we just want you to know who we are. And we are a church that builds everything around the Bible. That's what we do. 
That's why COVID has been so terrible for us because everything's built not around an event, but everything's built around the people of God gathering, hearing the word of God, responding together and dealing with it. And that's been really hard in an online only experience. And I want you to just know that that's what, you know, because people go, what is this about? This is about us walking through books of the Bible together, talking about every rock I can pick up and look at, throwing it to you guys, and then go, okay, let's all talk about this this week as well. And and I want you to know, because every once in a while people go, why do we do sermon-guided discussions? It's not because we think the sermons are so great, okay? That's not why. The reason that we do sermon-guided discussion is two reasons. Alignment, leadership. Let's all head in the same direction. What if this next week, everybody in our church thought about their own leadership more? Wow, that would be powerful. Across 55 groups all over our city, and then application, because the truth is most of us don't need more knowledge. We need to apply the knowledge that we have. And so the best thing that we could do is, well, you know, you've all been sitting here for 40 or 50 minutes. Well, okay, well, why don't, so you kind of know what the passage means. Now, why don't you wrestle with it? And go, well, this is, you know, this is where I'm not being a great leader. This is, I could be a better dad. And I hate my boss, you know, and I probably shouldn't, you know, and I need to learn how to respect leadership. And so this is, inc- this is incredibly important. And let me, let me, let me read verse nine one last time. Verse nine, as he closes, here's what he says. He says this, and so he ends, again, we're going to pick up next week in verse 10. He ends kind of with a, a negative thing. He says, and so I will make you despised and abased. Why? Because you're trying to impress people. He says, so I will make you despise and abase before all the people. And as much as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. See, what happened here is the priest, and, I, and I, we talk about this a lot. You know, the Old Testament is terrible in the sense that it just shows everybody has failed. And right, what we see here is the priests have utterly failed even to the very end. They'd been given a lot of time to repent. They have 1,500 years of the writings of Scripture Uh, They have the narratives, they have the Psalms, they have the Proverbs, and they have failed. Which is why, if you ever wonder, why does Jesus Christ need to come and be our great high priest? That's one of the ways Jesus talks about himself, as our great high priest. But why? Because here's what a priest was supposed to do. Two things. Represent God and represent man. The the, the biblical language is to be a mediator. It's like, well, you know, how do I have a relationship with God? Because I'm a sinner, you know. And God is holy, and so how could I ever, you know, have a relationship? When in the Old Testament, they had these priests. And I'm summarizing a lot of things, but the priest would basically be like, look, here's what you need to do. You need to, here's what the sacrifice means, and here's why it needs to be the best, and, and come with me, and I'll represent, I'll represent you to the Lord, and we'll talk about this, and we'll pray about these things, and God's like, you're not doing any of that. Like, how am I going to send my son as the blemished, or the, the, the sinless, unblemished lamb of God when you've been settling for blemished things all your life? So Jesus Christ comes, and what he does, and this is why you need to understand, it's like all theology is practical. Why, is, why do we believe that Jesus Christ was 100% God and 100% man? Well, number one, because the Bible teaches it, but number two, because it makes the most sense if he has to fully represent God and fully represent us. That's why he had to live the perfect life. That's why he was the only one who could die in our place. That's why he had the power to, raise, to be risen from the dead over Satan, sin, and death. So let me just say to the, if you're here and you're watching online and you're not a Christian, you cannot be a spiritual leader until you're first spiritual. You, you can't, I want to be a spiritual leader. Well, you need to be born again first. And you know, what, what, here's a powerful thought. Is there, we're going back to school, you know, some schools are in some ways and, you know, Wake Forest is going back to some, some extent. And, what, and I had this thought as I was working on the sermon this week. I thought, what if some crazy Wake Forest student who's 
you know, breaking their command, breaking commandments and wrecking their life, okay? Uh, as a freshman or sophomore in college, what if they came to Christ through the ministry of our church and ended up being a church planner internally? What if the future church planners and missionaries and great Christian business leaders are wasting their lives and getting drunk and breaking commandments all over the city right now? That, that, that's the view. The view is we want to see people go from lost to spiritually leading. You know, and I, I just want to also just say this. And I've, never, I've never said this before. In four years of preaching, I've never said this. In four years of being the pastor here. Do some of you feel called to full-time vocational ministry? If you feel called to full-time vocational ministry, which is, which is, you know, a very small amount of people are called to that. But, you know, I just want to say this because I, I don't think I've ever said this publicly. I just love so much what I do. I, I, I don't think there's anyone in the, in the whole, well, let's just say at least in Winston-Salem that I would trade, trade jobs with. I love with all my heart what I do. It's a great joy, privilege, burden, honor, responsibility to be in full-time ministry. And, you know, back in the day, churches all the time, they would, they would, they would do calls for that, right? We're not going to do that right now. Here's what I want to say. If, you, if God's ever put that in your heart, say, I wonder what it would be like to be in a full-time ministry. Particularly if you're, for anyone I'm talking to, but particularly if you're young, let me just say this. Email Caleb Duvick. He's our, one of our pastors. We would love to talk to you about the residency. We have a vision to raise up a generation, a generation of Christian leaders both in the marketplace and in the full-time ministry. Let's pray that God would do a great work in and through our church. Pray with me. Lord, I want to pray right now. I, I didn't say this either, but just, if there's a, you know, I think for all of us in this room, I just want to give us a chance to repent. You know, I need to repent, Lord. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better son to my dad. Wherever you guys would say, you just need to repent right now and say, Lord, here's where I'd like to lead a little bit more. For some of you, it's with your coworkers. You've, been, you've not been leading at all. No one knows you're a Christian except for Jesus. And you've not been able to be an example for Christ because no one knows you follow Christ. I want to encourage the dads in here. We're going to talk about this next week. Just to really lead. Just take your next step. Pray a 30-second prayer. Moms, with your kids, lead. I want to encourage our community group leaders, Lord. Strengthen them. I thank God for them. If they're in this room or they're listening online, thank you, Lord. I pray you'd encourage them. It's been a hard time for leaders. Lord, I feel, I feel called to pray for our nation right now. No matter how we want to define it, we're in some type of crisis. We need leadership. Lord, we pray for President Trump. We pray for Governor Cooper. We pray for Mayor Joins. We, I don't know, those are the people that we know that are leading at local, national, state levels. God, help them. Lord, and, and let us take our next step in leading ourselves and leading the people you put in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.